0: And you may be seated for now. As you are, I will ask you to take your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 6. Once again, this morning we will be concluding our short side trip out to this vista point that we talked about when we began it, our little detour from the Gospel of of Mark, and we've been here looking at chapter 6 of John's Gospel, this discourse of Jesus, one of the longest discourses in the Gospels. Uh, We've been hearing, remember, that Jesus is speaking to the crowd who have sort of pursued him across the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum and have been really pursuing him in order that they might receive food from him. Jesus chastens them uh, for that. And he's been talking to them about the fact that that bread that he gave is not the true bread, but that he is the true bread. That he himself is the bread of life that gives eternal life. He is superior to Moses. And remember we've been seeing a lot about Moses in this passage about the people saying, Jesus, why don't you do a sign for us like the one Moses did when Moses gave bread from heaven. Give us this, this bread, this miraculous bread. And Jesus has, has explained to them that he is superior to Moses, that the, the manna that God the Father gave through Moses back in the Old Testament was really a picture of the true bread. The true bread that comes from heaven, and that is Jesus. Specifically, that he is the bread as he gives up his life in sacrifice on the cross. And, as he explained, uh, to benefit from this bread, one must partake of it. That is that they must accept it and appropriate it by faith. And he says, if they do, they will receive, and whoever does will receive eternal life, which only this bread, which is Jesus, can give. So the topic here in John chapter 6, the topic of our vista point, is that Christ gives eternal life through his own flesh and blood, offered up on the cross, and received by faith. This is a passage on salvation. A passage on how it comes and to whom it comes. The only way to receive it. Now we also know, remember from last week, that as Jesus explained this more and more and the importance of being united to him and appropriating him, that that was difficult for many of those who were hearing it. Many didn't understand it. They, we read, couldn't understand it. And verse 66 tells us that after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of this group that had followed him, many that had chased him uh, over to where he had fed 5,000 and now back across the sea, back to Capernaum, uh, to to hear from him. that now they leave, and now they're not interested because Jesus has pointed away from those extraneous things, those miracles, those signs and is focusing their attention on what the signs are pointing to, to him. Now we looked at this last week at the, the biggest part of, of this chapter here beginning uh, in verse 35 and we're going to take another pass at this particularly because most Christians do not really have trouble Believing and there's no disagreement among Christians really, that Jesus is the bread of life, no disagreement that Jesus is the true bread which came down from heaven and that He gives himself in order that people might have eternal life. those things uh, those aspects of this discourse, though they were uh, portions of it were a problem for the Jews that were listening, are not a big sticking point within the church today. But scattered in and around and under these statements are others that Jesus makes, difficult ones, that have become difficult sticking points with many in the church. Statements of seemingly, on the surface, contradictory ideas or at least difficult to reconcile ideas that many people today struggle to balance. And there are three statements in particular uh, that seem to cause trouble among those in the church, especially when they're considered together. We're going to look at those today. They, they cause trouble, but it, it needn't be that way because these statements here in John chapter 6 are so easy. They are so clear. You know, in seeking to understand the Bible and and to interpret the Bible, we maintain as a very basic proposition, the church does, a proposition of interpretation that the difficult places in Scripture are to be interpreted by the clearer places in Scripture. That Scripture interprets itself. Well, what we see here is not the difficult. What we see here is really the clear The clear portions, one of those clear portions, it is much more difficult to misunderstand these statements that Jesus gives here than it is to to miss them completely. It's more difficult to misunderstand than it is to understand. There's not really any biblical theological way to dispute these three statements we're going to look at. Again, People have trouble reconciling them and taking them all together. But we should have no trouble understanding them. And since they're on the lips of Christ himself and recorded in the book whose words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit himself, we should have no trouble accepting the things that Jesus says and believing them. Remember last week I said that we, were, we went through this passage with a broad brush and now this morning we're going to take out that finer brush and and bring out some of the details and look uh, at a few verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, good. If you don't, please take them out and turn to John chapter 6. And we'll read verses 35 through 44. Actually, we'll read down through verse 51. We won't be looking at everything there. Again, we're going to be picking and choosing as we go through today. If you want a general look at those verses, look at the sermon that that we did last week. But... John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35, and I'm going to ask you again to stand as we read God's word. Beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. is my flesh let's pray father we thank you once again for this word for your word we pray that as we look at it again this morning that you would bless this time we pray that you would open ears open minds open hearts lord to hear these great truths of christ that christ has taught today in his name we pray these things Amen. You may be seated. Three statements, three lofty truths this morning from this passage concerning first the purpose of God and then the problem of man and the promise of Christ regarding salvation and accepting the truth that Jesus is the bread of life and receiving the eternal life that he gives. And we're going to present those three ideas with three words. And the first of those words is everyone. Everyone. And that has to do with the divine purpose. And the the truth that we are looking at here is that everyone whom God has appointed to salvation will receive it. Praise the Lord. And Jesus says it very simply there in the first half of verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And we know, Jesus says, that this is true because that is the will of God. That is the will of the Father in sending the Son to earth. That is the reason that there was an incarnation. That is the reason uh, that Jesus came and took our nature and lived here. That's what Jesus came to do, remember. He came to accomplish the will of the Father. And it is important to see that this truth is tied directly to this very purpose for Christ's coming and coming to earth, taking on a human nature, living f- flawless in flawless conformity to God's law and atoning for sinners by his death on the cross. Look at verse 39. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And again, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, verse 39, this is the will. This is the will of God. This is the thing that I came to do, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raised it up on the last day. So it is the Father's will. It is God Almighty's will that of those given to Jesus that he lose none. Zero. That of those given to him that he raised all of them up on the last day. If you notice when we were reading that, that phrase is repeated several times. It is the Father's will that of those that he has given to the Son for him to redeem, for him to enjoy, for him to, to have as his that not a single one of them, Jesus says, will be missed. In the, the subject of redemption and of salvation, no one falls through the cracks. And this short statement here of Jesus proves a few things. First, it proves that there is a group of people that the Father has marked out in a special way. All that the Father gives to me. Now that's a subset of everyone in the world. If Jesus meant everyone in the world was included in that, he wouldn't say those that the Father gives me. And we understand from other places in the Bible that God marking some out and putting them into this group, giving them to the Son is based solely on God's pleasure, not based on anything in any of those people who are in that group, who are not in that group. It is based totally on God's pleasure, not because of anything in them. John said that we are born not of the will of man, but of the will of God, speaking of the second birth. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That God, when he chooses people, we use the word election sometimes. That that is not because of anything, anyone is any better, anyone is either any more worthy, because none of us are worthy. No one in this in the history of this world is worthy of salvation. But God takes some of the people by his good pleasure, by his wisdom, according to the counsel of his will, and he says, I am going to give these people to my son. The second thing that it proves is that the Father has marked these certain people out for that, for a specific purpose to give them to Christ. Keep your finger here in John 6 and turn over to John 17. And look at how Jesus speaks as he prays to his Father. So John 17, many of you will know that this is what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying to God. Look at verse 2. Well, we'll start at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since... You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This group of people has been given to Christ, for Christ, to give eternal life to. Look down at verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you have given them to me and they have kept your word. I mentioned earlier that this group of people existing means that God has chosen them apart from or that he's not talking about everyone in the world but a particular group that God has chosen. And Jesus says it right here in verse 6. You gave me, those whom you gave me, out of this world. Not the whole world, but those whom you gave me out of this world. Out of the people who are are the whole world, out of that number, and for the purpose of bringing them out of it, you have given them to me. Now go to look at verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Here again, there's a differentiation. Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for everyone. I'm praying for those that you have given to me. He says, for they are yours. They are yours, you have given them to me. Now drop down to verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's the purpose. That those who have been given to Christ would be with Christ. Would be with God. So there is this group who have been given, chosen out by God and given to the Son as a gift. Now, this group is very broad. Countless numbers in there through history. It consists of people, the book of Revelation tells us, from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. But it does not consist of every person from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. Again, God has chosen a certain number of those to give to the Son. They are given to the Son as His possession as his inheritance, as his people. So it proves that. It also proves that the divine purpose in sending Christ was actually to redeem those people, to save all of those that the Father has given to him. Back in chapter 6, in verse 38... Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Beloved, according to the divine plan of almighty, all-powerful God of heaven and earth whose plan no one can hinder, whose plan no one can stop, remember in Daniel 4.35 even the pagan king Nicodemus Uh, remembered that he and said, He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And according to that divine plan of that divine sovereign God, every single person, according to the statement of Jesus here, every single person whom the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son and will be raised up on the last day. As Paul said, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, that's the purpose of God. Paul really saying the same thing there in Romans 8.29 that Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus came to actually save those people. Not to make salvation possible and then if they do the right things and come the right way uh, and say the right thing, sign the card that they might possibly receive it. Jesus came to save them. Hebrews 9.12 says that he obtained eternal redemption for them. Not that he made it possible, but he obtained it. He removed the wrath of God for them. Against them. And the assurance of this divine purpose is not just for your initial salvation, not just that you would be saved, be justified, but this statement that keeps coming up tells us that this is full and complete salvation along that golden chain of salvation and goes all the way to the end of glorification in the resurrection. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. He says it four times as he speaks about Jesus here, speaks about his mission, speaks about his purpose. He speaks of the fullness of eternal life on into eternity. That's what he came to do. He came to secure you, Christian, in him. You have come to him in faith to secure your place in his kingdom through his blood. The statement of Jesus also proves that the will of the Father is that of those given to Christ, that Christ lose none. Children, have you ever been somewhere with your parents and gotten separated from your parents? It's a very scary feeling. And it can be dangerous. There are dangerous things and places and people out there. When you're lost and out of the protection of your parents and those who love you. But it would be even more terrifying, children and adults, it would be even more terrifying to be out from under the hand and the eye and the will of God. God who loves you more than your parents ever could. But every Christian here today hearing this can be assured that God will never lose any of his children. Christ will never lose any of them. Jesus has made sure of that by doing everything that he did on earth and he says it here. That of all those who have been given to me, God's will that always happens is that I lose few. No, that I lose none. It is God's divine purpose in sending Christ and in the working of the Holy Spirit that every single one whom God has given to the Son as His inheritance will, in fact, come to Him. Isaiah 53.10 says regarding Christ that when His soul makes an offering for guilt, that He shall see His offspring. Speaking of those same people, that's us. We're His offspring. We are those who have been given to Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, that's you. God has given the Son a gift. He has given him a people. He has given him a body, a spiritual body, which is the church. They're all the same people. Jesus, in eternity past, was was granted a people, a people to call his own, a people to take for his own, a people to receive as his own inheritance, a people that he agreed to come and to die for, to secure and to assure that he will raise them up on the last day and of those he will lose zero. He has secured, he has redeemed, he has given himself for them. He will have them all. That is the divine plan. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus will not be shorted. He will not be cheated. He will not be deprived of even one of those that the Father has given to him. All those everyone whom the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. Again verse 40 says for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What good news that is. But there's a problem. A potentially disastrous problem here. And that's going to be our our second point here. We've seen a statement about everyone, that everyone given to Christ will come to Christ, but now we see a statement about no one. And that's the disastrous problem. That no one is able to to desire Christ. Remember verse 40 here says, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. That's necessary. But now we're going to learn that no one is able to desire Christ and come to Christ unless God works first in His heart. So God has given Christ a group of people to be his people, his inheritance. And Christ has come and lived and died for those people to provide and to secure their salvation. He has come to provide and in fact to be the bread of life that gives eternal life for them so that all who believe in him will have eternal life, so that everyone who comes to him will be saved. But the problem is that no one can come to me, Jesus says. That's the disastrous problem, that we can't come to Christ and receive that. We suffer from a humanly incurable paralysis that keeps us from coming to Christ. A paralysis called sin. A paralysis called depravity. And it is true. We won't come to Christ on our own. But that's because we can't come to Christ on our own. Now, some say, "Well, you just need to approach it the right way. You just need to use the right methods, and then someone can come to Christ." Um, that's what the, an evangelist from the the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century in this country thought. And he's, a, he's become a, a, a child of, of evangelical churches very often. They speak of him quite favorably, not knowing that he says some of the things that he said. Listen to what he says. And this is, by the way, a man named Charles Finney. He said, There is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. A revival is not a miracle nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. A revival is as naturally a result of the use of means as a crop is the use of its appropriated means. So you just have to do the right things. Go through the right motions. Charles Finney, as many of you know, is, is the one who is credited with inventing what we today speak of as the altar call. Where the music is played. Particular music. Where the lights today are, are used in such a certain way to, to entice people to come forward. But the Bible speaks otherwise, from what Finney says, saying that salvation at every turn is a supernatural event. Unless one is born from above, born from God, the Bible says he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, perhaps then we don't need the right methods, but maybe God has to use the right methods. Doesn't it say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him? Maybe it's, it, maybe it's not us alone that, that with the music and the lights and the, the pleas. Maybe that's not what does it, but maybe God draws people. Maybe God uses all of those things to entice people, to encourage people to salvation to demonstrate to them even through the preaching of of the word that they are in need of Christ and that their eternal destiny hangs in the balance. And maybe what needs to be done is that the gospel uh, shows people and and is so, so attractive to people that one cannot help but come. Well in a way God does those things through the faithful preaching of the word but there's more. There has to be more. Because millions hear the preaching of the gospel. Many have sat through altar calls. Many have been evangelized. Many have, have had people speak to them and share with them who don't come. So what's the difference? You know, am I saying that, that if someone is to be saved that, that it is not enough To preach and to pray and to sing and to have the music and all of that. To convict and to convince. No, I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. Where? Right here. In verse 44. No one can come to me unless the songs are right. Unless the lights are right. Unless the pastor cries enough unless everything is set up just right, unless the gospel is, is preached in just the right way, and the gospel needs to be preached in just the right way, but something more than that has to happen, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You say, well, there it is. God uses those things to draw people, to entice people. Well, let me tell you a little bit about that word draws. In that text. Yes, God must draw someone if someone is to be saved. Otherwise, there is no possibility of them being saved. And when it happens, they will be saved. The word in the original is elko. And it is translated here and is sometimes translated draw. But the idea that the word conveys is not to encourage or to entice. But it is more to pull, or to drag, or to drive, or to pick up and carry. If you like the word draw, think of drawing a sword. That's the kind of draw. The sword doesn't do a lot of help when a sword is drawn from a scabbard. You pull it, like Peter did, in the garden. Let me show you another some other uses of this word, uh, there, two of them are from the book of Acts. In Acts 14, 19, the crowd stones Paul and then they elcode him out of the city. That doesn't mean they said, Paul, will you please leave? The translation is that they drug him out of the city. In Acts 16, 19, the same kind of thing. The masters of the the slave girl that Paul released from her demon possession, they seized Paul and Silas and they elkoed them into the marketplace before the rulers. Again, it's translated that they dragged them into the marketplace. And in John 21, the disciples, remember Jesus says to to put the, the nets down for a draft of fish, And how did they get the fish into the boat? They elkoed it. They drug it with much effort. That's the method that God must use. We must understand that drawing someone is as much an activity of God as raising him up on the last day. You don't help with that. You don't help with being raised up on the last day, and you don't help with this. The drawing that is done is God placing you, as Peter says, taking you from the kingdom of darkness and putting you in the kingdom of light. God does it. It's a glorious truth that this is the way it is that God acts sovereignly and powerfully in bringing people to Christ. Yes, we preach the gospel. That's the means that he uses. But it is not the gospel that converts people. It is God who converts people. It is not the gospel itself even preached as purely and as wonderfully as as it could be. It's not preaching the gospel that saves someone. God uses the gospel to bring people, by his effort, into the kingdom. And that is so glorious because it's the only way that it will happen. As Jesus says, no one will come to me unless that happens. He said that everyone who the Father has given to me will come to me. That's great. But he also says that no one will come to me unless God does this. And so praise the Lord that God does this. Because we in our own self will not do it, cannot do it. Paul says there's no one who seeks God. Isaiah says that we've all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. Paul again says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. John says that we hated the light and loved the darkness. Paul in Romans said that we were daily storing up wrath for the day of wrath. We hated God, he says. We were his enemies. We were estranged from him. We were without God and without hope. And we were totally unable to do ourselves what is required before God. Even to come to Him. Even to exercise faith in Him. We can't do that unless God gives us faith. Unless He regenerates our hearts first. We can't enter the kingdom of God. We can't see the kingdom of God unless we are first born from above. So you see that it is good that God saves us without our help because we don't have any help that we can give. So this is the way that God brings people to himself, to Christ, and it's the way that brings all glory to him and none to us. Whereas boasting, Paul said, it's excluded. So the facts are simple. There's a divine purpose that everyone whom the Father has given to Christ will indeed come to him. And there's a disastrous problem that no one is able to come to Christ unless the Father sovereignly, powerfully draws him. But there's a dependable promise, and that's the last thing we want to see. And that is, goes along with the word anyone. That anyone who desires salvation and comes to Christ for it will receive it. Again, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever, anyone who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me, says in verse 35, shall never thirst. We've seen from verse 39 in regard to the Father's divine purpose that it is his will that Christ should lose nothing of all that the Father has given to him. Well, that too. And this too is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and God will raise him up on the last day. This passage, as strong as it is on the sovereignty of God, is also full of appeals to the hearers. In verse 35, he says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37 says, Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 40 says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 45 says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 47 says, Whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 51 says, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54 says whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 57 says whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. And verse 58 says whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the free, gracious, universal offer of the gospel. Whosoever will Let him come. See, there is no one who is so bad that they cannot come this way. And there's no one so good that they need not come this way. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the message that we preach in the church. This is the, the content of our evangelism. These verses are critical to our evangelism, to how we think as we, we go out. Now, we know that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. But when we preach, we, uh, when we evangelize, we don't have to evangelize that way. We tell them, whoever comes to Christ will not hunger. God will deal with the drawing. See, the knowledge of God's divine purpose, the first thing we looked at, that informs our evangelism. And our our knowledge of the disastrous problem of man's sins and depravity, that gives drive to our evangelism and urgency to our evangelism. Because we know people are dying without Christ. And then the knowledge then of this dependable promise gives hope to our evangelism. This is what governs and guides our evangelism, the promise of Christ that whoever comes will be received. That's the message of evangelism. This is a great, broad offer. And it extends to the ends of the earth. It extends to those of whatever nationality Or race, or color, or religion, or or social strata, or political bent, or sexual orientation, whatever. It extends to everyone, and it is as desperately needed by the Wall Street executive, and kings, and presidents, and princes, as it is by the drug addicts, and the adulterers, and the gossips. And the message is the same for all of those. You are a sinner. You will be judged. That's the law, right? And then the gospel comes in and says, whoever will come to Christ, he will never cast out. There is no one in the history of the world who has earnestly, through the the working of the Spirit, come to Christ and said, Christ, save me. Where Jesus has said, no. It's contrary to his nature. It's contrary to his words. So it's a very broad, as broad as possible, statement, offer. But while it is very broad, we should also remember that it is also not general in the sense that any old coming, in any old way, to any old God, or even to the true God, is all that's required. Some people seem to have that understanding today. Call yourself a Christian, and you're good. Check that box on the survey when it comes to you. Try to live a moral life, and voila, you're a Christian. Or, don't even have to worry about that. Take all of the so-called gods. They all lead to the same place anyway. All the religions, all the false gods, all the gods, all the philosophies, and fan them out. You know, sort of pick a god, any god, and they're all good. It's not so much what you believe, but how hard you believe. That's important. Many say that today. But that is a lie. That will not do. The promise is that everyone who comes in the way prescribed by God and through the door provided by God and through the instrument decreed by God, anyone who comes that way and to that Christ will be received. That way is through Christ. That door is Christ. That bread is Christ. That instrument is faith. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And we believe that. We preach that. There are a lot of people who don't particularly like the Reformed faith, the Reformed theology, who think that we, we don't believe that. But we do. And, in, and the great mark of Reformed theology is we believe what the, the Bible says. Listen to this statement from a Reformed believer. God invites all indiscriminately to salvation through the gospel. And this, God commands the gospel to be offered indiscriminately to all. That's John Calvin, by the way. If you come to Christ, the Christ presented in the scriptures by faith, he will receive you. And notice the beauty, back to our text here, notice the beauty, the comfort of one particular word in this verse, in verse 37, a word that should be highlighted by every Christian in their Bible, and especially in their heart. In verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you know, Christian, that as God has awakened in you your need of Christ and as God has united you with Jesus, your Savior, and as God has, by His power, brought you to Christ, He will also keep you in Christ. Not only will Christ accept all who come to Him so that when they come, He does not cast them out or refuse them in any way, but those who come to Him, He will never cast away, never remove, He will never forsake them, They cannot be taken out of his hand. In fact, John 10.28 says that. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. It's the same thing he says here, isn't it? And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now it's at this point that people can begin to get a little confused. How can these all be true? The everyone and the no one and the anyone. How do we reconcile all of that? And the the answer is to understand the priority of these. And we've hinted at this as we've gone along. Jesus receives freely. He receives immediately all, anyone who comes to him in faith. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Absolutely clear. Absolutely true. True. So the question is, who can come to him? Verse 44 says, No one, unless the Father draws such a person. That drawing is necessary. Listen to this quote. Christ declares that the doctrine of the gospel, though it is preached to all without exception, cannot be embraced by all, but that a new understanding and a new perception are necessary, and therefore that faith does not depend on the will of men, but that it is God who gives it. That's also John Calvin. By the way, this is the most number of Calvin quotes that I've ever had in a sermon. All of those who the Father draws will come to Christ, and all of those who come to Christ, Christ will receive. There's the key. There's the summary. All of those who the Father draws will come to Christ, and all of those who come to Christ, Christ will receive. Again, remembering that drawing is that sovereign act of God. He is the true bread, Christ is, who comes down from heaven to give eternal life. Now, in a message of this type, it is only fitting that each one of us examine ourselves. We're not going to play a song. We're not going to change the lights. But I'm going to ask each of you to examine yourselves and reflect on what we've heard today. Have you come to Christ, the true bread? Have you come to him in faith, seeking your salvation in nothing else but in him and in his promise? If so, and I pray that's I pray that's everyone here well, let's go away with two things to thank the Lord for as you leave here today. If you're trusting in Christ, know first of all that it's God's doing that you trust in Christ and give Him praise. Give Him glory for it. And know and give Him praise and give Him glory for this too, that having come and having been received, that through Christ, because of Christ, because of the will of God, that He will never cast you out. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, the true bread, who has come down from heaven, who has come down at your behest, O Lord. Come down to, to take our nature. Come down to live among us. To live as one of us. With all of our weaknesses, except for sin. In order that he might deal with our sin. We thank you that the great, glorious, wonderful promise of the gospel is for anyone who will receive it, anyone who will believe it, and that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray, Father, that you would use this passage and the preaching of this passage to your glory, that you would use it to turn a soul to you, through Christ, by the work of your spirit. Amen.